The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The United Kingdom goes to the polls this week to elect a new government just days after a second deadly attack during a campaign that is being claimed by Islamic State. Seven people were killed and 48 injured on Saturday after three men drove a van into people on London Bridge and then attacked them with knives. The UK's general election, the third countrywide poll since 2015, is the topic for this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and I'm joined by a trio of our finest. Europe editor John Foley. Hi, John. Hi. Economics editor Peter Tal-Larsen. Hi, Peter. Hi, Anthony. And associate editor Swaha Patanayak. Hi, Swaha. How are you doing? Hello, Anthony. Thank you for having us. So, John, let me start with you. Um, when Prime Minister Theresa May called the election in April, a few things seemed to be taken for granted. One was that the election would essentially be a referendum on which party the electorate wants to lead negotiations to take the country out of the European Union. So how much have the attacks in London and Manchester a few weeks beforehand changed that? Well, fundamentally, Anthony, whoever wins this election is, of course, the the leader and the party that's going to lead Britain through the negotiations to leave the European Union. That hasn't changed. And and, and Theresa May, um, who, of course, is currently Prime Minister and is hoping that she can renew her leadership of the country, is still focusing very much on the idea that she needs a strong majority to strengthen her hand. Now, originally that was about strengthening her hand in negotiations with her counterparts in the European Union, but also now that's taken on an extra um, significance, if you like, because she's now also asking us to strengthen her hand in dealing with domestic security issues. And these two terror attacks have sort of played to an ongoing theme of her campaign, which is the idea that under her Britain will be strong and stable. Uh, that's, that's both economically in its relationships with its trade partners and also now in, in terms of the way it handles threats like you know, violent attacks in London and Manchester as we've seen recently. So what is she suggesting that, that she can do? I mean this, this is a politician after all who, was it for six years before she became Prime Minister, ran the Home Office which is basically one of the, the department that one of whose remits is to uh, deal with domestic terrorism. So I mean her hands are already all over how the country responds to this kind of thing. Right, so May was for many years in charge of, of you know, what we call the Home Office, so that means domestic security, among other things, immigration. She's quite hawkish on these these topics. So one of the things that she is proposing to do, and she's been proposing this for a while, is to take a stronger grip over the internet in particular. So to, to focus on cracking open some of the, the encryption that's used on channels like WhatsApp or Snapchat, and also um, focusing on targeting inflammatory content, so online extremism. It's not clear how she wants to do these, how she's going to make companies like Facebook uh, play ball with that, but that's something that she has been saying again and again. She wants to have more control over the things people say over the internet and more access to the messages that people uh, use to convey information. Now, that's going to play quite badly in the US, I would imagine, where a lot of these tech companies are based and where there is a real adherence to the idea of freedom of speech. But that is one of the things that's going to, one of the many battles that's going to play out if she wins this election on Thursday. So obviously, if, if, if you're in the opposition party, Labour, or any of the other parties that are running this week, surely you're going to be saying immediately, but you had your chance when you were Home Secretary. What was she proposing then? And, and does she have a defence for why she hasn't or why the government hasn't already got the kind of protections that she seems to be talking about. One of the slightly frustrating things I would say about Theresa May and her 
cabinet and you know the people who immediately surround her during this campaign is a, is a slight unwillingness to answer quite simple questions so they have a technique of just basically answering the question they wanted to be asked rather than the question they actually got and that's one of those areas the huge cuts to the police force for example which um, clearly plays some role in in the current security climate they're not really engaging with those head-on ditto uh, Theresa May of course was um, in favor of remaining in Europe before the referendum now of course she her mandate uh, will be to take Britain out of it those kind of inconsistencies are sort of being glossed over a bit. In reality, I mean, we are where we are, and, and there's not too much point in, in looking back to people's positions before now and before the EU referendum. But the, the future challenge is going to be to keep Britain's economy on an even keel and also to try and manage some of the external and internal security conflicts while also meeting a very tough self-imposed target on immigration. So from what I'm hearing, I mean, the attacks have heightened obviously debate about non-EU issues, but it seems that the, the, the exit from the European Union still remains top of people's minds even in the wake of, uh, of these attacks. Actually, it's kind of the opposite. So you would expect that, um, that the European Union would be high on the agenda, but in, in the many political debates that have been happening in the last few days, it's been quite clear that a lot of voters don't really think that much on a day-to-day -day basis about what's going on with the European Union. There are a lot more domestic issues that have, have hit headlines much more impactfully, stuff about, um, about welfare, about social care. There was a very controversial proposal that suggested that people who had a large amount of wealth tied up in their houses should have to pay with that wealth for any care they received at home, say if they suffered from dementia later in life. Those things have really got people hot under the collar. But Europe, mostly, is something that is not really getting people that exercised. And when you, when you look at the attacks that have happened in the last couple of weeks and indeed in the last three months or so, people are focused much more on those and on the short-term impact of that than they are on the long-term question of what Britain is going to look like when it comes out of Europe. Okay, so I mean, that, that brings me to, to another issue that seemed to be taken for granted back in April when the election was called. And Swaha, let me throw this one out to you. And, and that is that um, Theresa May as the leader of Conservatives, probably would come back with an increased majority. At the moment, I think she has, what, a 12-seat a majority in the Houses of Parliament with 650 seats in total in there up for grabs. Um, and yet we've seen polls that have shown Labour gaining or, uh, or at least reducing the lead, even one last week, I think, talked to possibly of a hung Parliament. Um, but it seems that, that Theresa May has not so much lost the election, but certainly that the momentum that seemed to be there in April has gone. Does that sound right? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, for all the talk of strong and stable leadership that she and her entourage have been going around touting, there have been U-turns on the social care issues that John's talked about, other stuff. Um, and it seemed to her election to lose, but they're doing a very good job of trying to lose it. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Okay, so I mean, if we look at the, uh, the opposition party, Labour, I mean, th they normally would play well in a, an environment where social welfare taking care of, of your elders, taking care of your children, that normally plays well to their strengths because they have the, at least the, the Conservatives say they like to tax and spend. Well, if people want to see better welfare, they often, often are willing to, to see more spending done um, by the government. So how, how, is, how is leader Jer Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, doing, considering that, that uh, most seem to have uh, just discounted him completely a few months ago? Yeah, he's doing a lot better than most of his own MPs would have probably said when the um, expected when the election was first called. There have been some gaffes about 
costings and numbers and their own policies. And um, as you say, people like spending, they're less keen on perhaps the, the taxing bit to pay for the spending. Um, so, but those areas are not being examined quite as closely about how this money is going to be raised. And they have put more flesh on the bones, perhaps, than the Tory party have done of exactly where they intend to raise quite a lot of money from. So I guess the bar was very low. Jeremy Corbyn had faced a leadership challenge. And there were all sorts of sort of maneuverings within his own party to oust him several months before the election was called. So the surge in the polls has come as a surprise, I think, probably even to some within Labour. Right. Let's let's turn to how the markets have dealt with the election campaign and maybe even the the attack on Saturday. Going back to last year in the the wake of the referendum to take Britain out of the EU, uh, there was one wag, I think it was at at HSBC, that that, that said that basically the British currency, the sterling, has become the official opposition because Corbyn's Labour Party seemed to have been dead in the water. How much has markets played a role in reflecting what's going on or expecting what's going on or, or in what the campaigns have, have tried to latch on to? In the immediate aftermath of the referendum, Sterling became, I don't know whether it was the official opposition, it was definitely the best barometer of how hard or soft, if you like, those uh, twin ends of spectrum Brexit was supposed to be, whether we would have a very, very economically damaging Brexit with no sort of trade deal or whether it would be a much more sort of, well, less acrimonious, if you like, uh, departure from the union. What's turned out to be the case more recently is that Sterling's become the best barometer of the latest opinion poll for the Tory party. As the lead has shrunk, Sterling's value has declined, um, you know, against the dollar, against the euro. Um, That seems to imply that, you know, a belief that Mrs May is right when she says, give me a strong mandate and I will get a better deal. I'm less sure whether that's the case. The Tory party is probably more uniformly Eurosceptic than the others. You take Labour, the Liberal Democrats, although they are in Parliament, or SNP, which is the Scottish National Party, which is also represented in the Parliament. And what may be unusual is that while the markets at the moment are very, very nervous about a hung Parliament, a hung Parliament where opposition parties, as it were, hold a minority government, a Tory minority government, to account for every Brexit, bit of Brexit negotiation may end up with a softer deal for the exit than we might have got if the Tory party had a huge landslide majority and were left to their own devices. Right. So you're saying if there is a landslide, basically the, the Eurosceptics would, would run the coup, even though uh, the whole theory behind this was that if she got a big enough majority, she wouldn't have to be beholden to the Eurosceptics. Exactly. The, the problem seems to be with that argument is that Mrs May is ruling out certain things by taking a firm line and maybe those lines will change. She has changed her mind on policy before but if you take the starting point that she does not want as free immigration as we currently have, that implies certain things for trade given the stance other European Union countries have taken which is no free movement of goods without free movement of people. Um, So you can extrapolate out from what she's saying about immigration to certain things about trade, if you believe each side's stance. And that would mean that she would go hell for leather for something which may not be that great for the British economy, uh, especially if she believes her own line that no deal is better than a bad deal, which a lot of people perhaps on the economics profession might disagree with, but that's definitely the line that's being touted again and again. So, I mean, John, back back to you. Swaha seems to be 
more in favour of a hung parliament than several people I've spoken to. What's your view on what might work best for Britain? Well, it depends on whether you're thinking about uh, thinking as a person or as a company. I mean, if you if you compare the two main parties, Labour and Conservative, as a business, for example, then you're, it's basically a choice between much higher taxes from the Labour side um, and not really any change in tax on the Conservative side, but with lots of new red tape around kind of governance and um, publishing data on things like the gender pay gap, um, giving shareholders better votes on executive pay. So, so whichever way you look at it, there are, there's a kind of both sides are somewhere on the spectrum of government intervening more in business. Now, if you have a, a hung parliament, then I guess you could say that you get some kind of amalgam of the two. But really, uh, the, the question is just, you know, what, what flavour of government meddling do you want? At the moment, the base case is still that the, the Conservatives are going to win, but they've borrowed so many policies and philosophies from Labour and, and historical incarnations of Labour that actually, whichever way you look forward, you're going to get something a bit different and a bit less market-friendly than you had before and for the last six or seven years. Have we had much talk at all about what the Conservatives would like to get out of a deal with the European Union? I remember a few weeks ago, I think we had uh, Peter on the show talking about how the, manif- the election manifestos ought to at least lay out more information. I get the sense that hasn't really happened and that, that Theresa May has managed not to box herself into a corner, largely by, as you were saying earlier, never really answering the question. So I mean, what information do voters actually have about where the country goes according to whatever permutation of deal we get? Well, Anthony, there's been very little flesh put on the bones by either side. And, I mean, what May's attitude seems to be, well, I'm doing this in the best interest of the country because if I tell you, I'm also telling the European Union. Um, you can take that at face value or think she's going to make it up as she goes along, depending on your political persuasion, perhaps. Um, the problem is that all you're then left with is speculation on the basis of, say, a commitment on this is how many we want in terms of immigration figures, or a throwaway line about, you know, what we want to cooperate on security front. So there's very little more flesh on the bones as a result of this. And as John mentioned earlier, it's not come up any, you know, in enough detail when actual voters have got their chance to put the questions to Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn. People have focused on other issues far more. So they've not really been put to the test and there hasn't been a debate between the two with, say, journalists pressing them on this issue. So neither of them have really had to clarify so far too much more. There's also, I think, uh, this, the, this belief inherent in the Conservative campaign or in Theresa May's approach, which is that, that the only way to get a good Brexit deal is to be totally top secret about what you really want and how much you're prepared to give away. This is like the fundamental point of her refusal to answer these questions. She, she believes that if the Europeans know anything about where our red lines are, then we will basically get a terrible deal. And she's asking voters to buy into that idea that secrecy is our most potent weapon, which you know some people possibly will. But when she goes out there and says, you know, vote for me and strengthen my hand. A lot of people are left saying, you know, strengthen your hand to do what? We don't really know exactly what you think is a good deal. Um, We do know that uh, she and um, the Conservative Party have said that they want to get as close as they can to the existing trade relationship with Europe, so an ability to sell goods and services with almost no impediment, but none of the oversight and almost none of the budgetary contributions that go with that. Now, at the moment, that's seen as being fairly unlikely to the point of being impossible. Uh, and is there also a sense, I mean, there's, there's two things in mind politically here. One, does the European Union want to make sure that no other country feels it can suddenly leave and get a good deal? 
and and two, you know, we've got other elections in in Europe this year. I think you know, there's there's especially the German elections. So are politicians sort of positioning themselves based on their own domestic needs as well? Yes, domestic, but definitely so in France. Monsieur Macron has taken a very hard line in the run-up to the election that he ended up winning about what his view was. Since the election, Brexit hasn't really featured as high up on his agenda as, say, a Franco-German push to revive the European Union project, to push for greater Eurozone integration. These are far more important things for them than spending a lot of time making sure Britain's doing nicely outside the club. More to the point, as you said, it's to make sure that it's not seen as a nice, easy option for anybody else should sort of, I don't know, let's take a random example. Hungary decides it doesn't quite like the EU political norms that it's supposed to abide by. Well, why not peel off and then just get the same trade deal again? Or the Poles, you know, don't want to do without farm subsidies, which may get reduced because Britain's not paying in. So, well, they'll peel off and still get the same access. This is really something they want to avoid. And for short-term economic pain, I think the the political vision is much larger than what sort of impact it might have on the German automobile industry in the next two years. In the wake of the attacks on Saturday, Theresa May has been talking a big game about going after cybersecurity. Peter, let me turn to you. I think you've been looking at this. What problems do we have with this? How, how do we see this developing, or more importantly, I suppose, not developing? Well, it's it's a bit hard to say, to be honest, at the moment, because um, she's only talked about these things in very vague terms. So we will have to see precisely what it is that the government has in mind. And obviously, after the third attack in three months, it's understandable that, that Theresa May is is looking around for, for some, some kind of visible response. Um, or for someone to blame, you could argue. But but it seems like basically they're talking about two things um, when it comes to sort of extremism online. Uh, One is controlling propaganda, just, you know, the dissemination of of, of hateful messages, of of incitement to hatred or violence via services like YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And, um, uh, you know, you you can argue that that the, the, there is a uh, there is scope there for the um, for the tech companies to be more responsive and faster in taking down some of these horrendous messages more quickly than they do at the moment. So that's one area, and then the other area is is about seems to be about the sort of the government's ability to look at uh, private messages between uh, extremists in you know before uh, before attacks. WhatsApp in particular has come under uh, under scrutiny there because its its messages are now encrypted in such a way that only the sender and the receiver can see them. Not even WhatsApp knows what's in those messages. Um, and the government seems to think that uh, uh, they should have some sort of key uh, that should allow them to see the content of those messages. What ability does the UK government have to to put pressure on these companies to play ball? I mean, even the American government couldn't do it with Apple, for example, in the wake of the San Bernardino attacks a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think, well, I think you have to look at these two separately. So as I said earlier, I think with the um, publishing aspect, there are things you can do. I mean, you can you can pass laws and these internet companies will, albeit reluctantly, comply with them. I mean, Germany has restrictions on hate speech and has threatened to fine com- uh, internet companies that don't um, comply with them. Thailand has strict laws about defaming the monarchy and, you know, has threatened to block Facebook in Thailand unless it complied with those. So companies will honour local laws if they if they have to. And so, as I said, if Britain wanted to rewrite their freedom of speech 
rules and make them tighter to make it harder for for this kind of stuff to appear, then those companies, like everybody else, would have to comply. I think on the encryption front, it's harder. As you said, uh, even the US has struggled to do this with Apple. There are really a couple of problems with this. One is if you give governments a key to encrypted messages, then you raise not only privacy concerns, but you also raise hacking concerns. I mean, you basically create a vulnerability in your systems, which then becomes a target for people who want to use that for nefarious purposes. More significantly, I think, encryption technology is now so widespread and widely available. Basically, anybody with a PC and an internet connection um, can download some software which allows them to encrypt their messages in a way that they can't be uh, can't be read by by people who intercept those messages, and even if you get WhatsApp and Facebook and everybody else to um, to, to to kind of give you the key to their messages, then people will be able to switch to other services that don't use that don't comply with those rules and that are beyond the reach of Western governments. So encryption, I think, is generally a harder one to try and crack down on. Okay, Peter, over to you on 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 you know, the outcomes of the elections. What what scenarios do you see? happening or what what permutations of of deals happening between the various political parties in the UK if indeed there were a hung parliament after Thursday's election um well I think the first thing to say is that um, it would be it would be fairly messy i mean it's not the first time in recent memory that britain's had a, an election that didn't produce a majority for one party but in this case you have a situation where the party's agendas are just so very different you know the conservative party we, we kind of know what their position is in terms of uh, in terms of what they want to do with brexit and what they want to do with with taxes and so forth labor is obviously uh, in terms of the domestic agenda very different but then you have uh, if you had a, a a situation where there was no majority then it would be up to there'd be a handful of parties in the middle that could 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 basically pick the government and you have the liberal democrats to begin with who are in, are the only party as far as i know that are in favor of having another referendum on brexit when the negotiations are completed that's something that they've insisted on that would be a deal breaker i think for either of the other two parties where it comes to a coalition and then you have the Scottish Nationalist Party, which potentially has, has got quite a big block, and also wants a that um, they want a sort of a, a, a softer Brexit as they can possibly get. But they also would like another referendum on Scottish independence, uh, which is something the Conservatives don't want to give them, uh, and and I imagine would be hard for Labour to agree to as well. So you can imagine, you know, coalition discussions in that situation being quite complicated, and all of this against the backdrop, of course, of this ticking clock of the Brexit negotiations, which have to be completed or subject to some sort of extension by the end of March 2019. So the, the, the outcome uh, is far from clear. My sort of bugbear in all this is just that the, um, the election that was supposedly about Brexit has almost entirely avoided any discussion of Brexit. The parties have not been straight about the fact that whatever the outcome, it's going to be economically worse for people. And I think, you know, whoever wins the election is basically going to have to is going to, is going to have to deal with that when reality sets in. OK, guys, thanks so much, Swaha. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, John, for coming on and discussing it. Been a great conversation. Thanks again. That's our show for this week. Thanks adieu again to our guests, John Foley, Peter Tal-Larsen and Swaha Patanayak. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in too. Our producers this week are Bethel Habti and Andrew D'Antonio. Do check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes. And please don't forget to share your opinions about our show. We'll be back next week. Do tune in. Thanks again. <laughs>